If you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24. We are back in Samuel. David is still running from Saul. I know you're surprised by that. He's still running. Saul still is not able to catch him. Saul has pursued him all over, and now it appears that David has found a place where he can be safe. Not going to read the text completely, but if you look at verses 29 of chapter 23 and verse 1 of chapter 24, we see that David went from the wilderness of Ziph to the stronghold of Engedi. And Saul finds out that David is in the wilderness of Engedi. So I find geography just fascinating. I don't know if you were like me when you were little. I always got excited about geography class. Like the math class, ah, I can do it. The other classes, okay, I'll take it or leave it. But geography class, it seemed real. It seemed like I could wrap my brain around it, and I just loved our planet anyway. And I love geography. The geography of the Bible is pretty fascinating. Often in the text, almost always, we know a general location of what's going on, of where it's happened. Uh, but there are times in the Scriptures where you know exactly where something happened. You know the exact geography. The thing is still there. For instance, Hezekiah's tunnel. If you remember before the invasion, uh, Hezekiah dug a tunnel through the rock down to the spring that would supply the people during the, the invasion that we learned about in Sunday school this morning, actually. And Hezekiah's tunnel is still there. You can go walk through that tunnel. You know that you're planting your feet on something that's in the Bible. Well, this is one of those times. Engedi is still there. It's right by the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the planet. That's why the water is all dead. There's nowhere for it to run off. It's the lowest spot. Everything runs off into it. It's that ditch that everyone just it collects everything. There's nothing living there. Well, right next to the Dead Sea, between the Dead Sea and Jerusalem, the Dead Sea from your perspective and Jerusalem in the mountains, is this desert wasteland. And in the middle of this desert wasteland is this spring, a literal spring, waterfall, palm trees, the whole thing, in the middle of the desert. And it's called Engedi. This is where David went. That spot, that water, that place, those caves. And Engedi means spring of the goats. And if you just pull up some YouTube videos and look at Engedi, there's still goats running around. It's still there. It seems like it's just taken out of time and moved three, 4,000 years until today. And you can see what David saw. Maybe those same caves that you see are the caves that we're going to read about today. I love that fact. I love that we can plant our feet solidly in geography often in the Old Testament text and, of course, the New Testament as well. So this is 1 Samuel 24. It takes place at En Gedi. Wouldn't it be neat if our church was standing at En Gedi right now and I just set up a little rock and I preached this sermon with the fall behind me? Like That's what I want you to imagine. We're at En Gedi. We're talking about what just happened with David. Please remain seated. It's a long passage, but I'm going to read the entire chapter. This is God's holy word. 1 Samuel 24. 
When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. He came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. The kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father God, we are so thankful that you've given us your word and what a, a great unity we see in every page. 
your redemptive plan unfolding page by page, exactly as you willed it. We pray that we would trust you as David did, that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to walk through the passage and give you a few points of application that I thought were meaningful. We see that after Saul finishes fighting the Philistines, and if you remember, that's why Saul had to leave David before, was because he was told the Philistines were attacking. So Saul took off with his army. He fought the Philistines. But it seems that as soon as the Philistines are taken care of, he's right back on David's trail. David would get no rest. Do you feel like that sometimes? It's just a a constant, perpetual series of trouble. This is how David is feeling at this moment. This man is continuing to be pursued by Saul. And he's hiding now in the wilderness and in Gedi. This is a unique place because you can see for miles... In Engedi, he's he's able to see anyone approaching. And he also has a source of water and he has a source of food. There's so many goats there. There's sheep. So this is where he's chosen to hide. It just so happens that when Saul shows up, he goes into the very cave where Saul and his men are hiding. They don't want a conflict. Saul has 3,000 men. You remember how many David has? 600. So he was outnumbered five times. That's not good odds for a battle. So they decide to hide in caves. That's what David does. He's in the innermost parts of the cave with his men. And as providence would have it, Saul goes in to relieve himself. We don't know exactly what that means. It may mean just relieve himself like you would imagine. It could mean resting. But regardless, David sees him and his men immediately start telling him, You've got to go kill him. God has delivered him into your hands. They start quoting the promises to David in verse 4. The Lord has said, Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand. So here he is. Go kill him. David, go do this. So David sneaks forward, but he doesn't kill Saul. He cuts off a corner of his robe. What's he doing? Well, you saw how it worked out. And if you remember in Samuel too, the robe, whenever you see a robe and you see David or you see Samuel, the robe is a symbol of the kingship. It's a symbol of authority. So he probably is cutting off a portion of this robe to prove that that Saul could have been killed, certainly. But we see it from a a narrative perspective, from a literary perspective, as the theme of kingship. And David is tempted to take the throne by force and kill Saul. But he cuts the robe instead. And it says that he was struck to the heart. Why is that? Well, he explains, Saul is the Lord's anointed. And it's interesting, anointed is the word Mashiach. It's Messiah. So it's a word that has many... Uh, Well, a few uses. This is one of the uses. This is the man that God has raised up for this time, David is saying. He's raised him up to be king. To be our anointed one. In other words, he's going to be king until he's no longer king, and I need to respect him as king. 
and not rise up against him, he'll be the one that God uses until God decides not to use him. So I need not to be doing this. This is why he was struck to the heart. A quick word of application. I think it's, it's important to see how Satan uses the word of God in our lives. He twists it. He often twists it. That's why we need discernment when we read the scriptures. When you hear the scriptures preached, your attitude should be receiving God's word, of course. But if something isn't scriptural, you throw it out. As a woman in our church once said, you, you eat the bones and you or you eat the meat and throw out the bones. Like you you have to be discerning. These men were trying to get David to sin, to murder a man by using God's word. And that's exactly the way Satan tempted Adam and Eve, twisting God's word. That's how Satan tempted Jesus, twisting God's word, using the scriptures. This is what these men do with David as well. But then in verse 7, we see that David persuaded his men. This is a, an interesting word, persuaded. It's literally David tore in two. He tore his men in two with his words. It's more than persuaded. It's a more violent word, isn't it? It's more like he had to... Can you imagine this is all happening in the cave where Saul is relieving himself? resting, whatever. He's tearing into his men with his words who wanted to kill Saul and David faces them down to protect Saul's life. And the reason I mention the meaning of that word because I think it's just such a kind of delicious irony that and the Hebrews love this kind of thing. Indeed, the whole Eastern culture loves it. We love it. But the fact that Saul came out to the desert to do what with David? To tear him in two. And David is tearing his men into with his words to protect Saul, to keep him from being hurt, to keep him safe. Reminds us, I think, of Christ on the cross. What does he say? Lord, they don't know what they're doing. Lord, forgive them. They're, they're throwing insults at him, and he's actually using his words to protect them in as much as it's in his power. So in verse 8, we see David, after Saul goes out, David goes out behind him and he calls out, my Lord, the king. And he bows his face to the earth and pays homage to Saul. So you should see the great contrast between Saul and all of his self-righteousness and selfish ambition and his murderous intent and David in his humility in submission to God and His will, in submission to the authority of the king. David calls out to Saul in a God-honoring way. I believe this is instructive for us as we also may times in our lives have rulers over us that we don't approve of, who are wicked men, wicked women, doing things we don't like. We need to remember that they are there because God has put them there. Until the next election, we need to pray for them. Saul was a murderer. He murdered a whole city of priests. He was a God-hater. He was an antichrist. And yet Saul was king, and David honors him as king because he's honoring God in the process. Even this despicable, hateful, wicked 
king. David trusts in God, and he's able to do this because he trusts in God. If you think to yourself, that would be really hard if any of our leaders came in here, our worst leaders in the country, in the state, in the city, whatever. It would be hard for me to, to honor them or respect them. It's only in so much as you don't respect God's authority that it would be hard. Because if you know God put them there, you don't agree with them, but you can honor them. You can pray for them. So he calls out to Saul. He's got the piece of robe in his hand. He says, here's the proof. I'm not your enemy. If, if I'd wanted to kill you, I would have killed you. Look, I'm holding the robe. Look at, look at your robe. There's a piece missing and I've got it. I have not sinned, but you hunt my life to take it. And then he calls on God. This is his attitude in this difficult situation. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. Verse 12. But my hand shall not be against you. He says, you're the king, I'm a flea, and God should choose between us and see who's righteous in this this situation. May the Lord be the judge in verse 15 and give sentence between us, between me and you. My life and my future basically are in God's hands and I'm not going to reach out and take it. I'm not going to reach out and, and take this situation into my own hands. God is my judge. I will not be the judge and executioner. I will wait on God. This is David's attitude. In Latin, the phrase is Deo Vindici. We have God as our defender. We trust in God alone. Vengeance belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That is a huge relief for us. We don't have to strive against our enemies. Whether they be real or imagined, we give it to God. What a freeing place that is. And it doesn't have to be someone trying to kill you even. It can just be someone who doesn't like you. What do you do? You just pray. You give it to God. And what you'll find is as you pray for these people who don't like you, God works an amazing change in your own heart and you begin to love them. You begin to love them with the love of Christ. So look in verse 17. Saul's reaction to David. Saul's in a little bit of a pickle here. Would you agree? He's come all the way out here with his 3,000 chosen men. This is his his 3,000 man sealed team. These are the best of the best. Here he is. He's the king. And there's the guy. There's David. He comes out before him holding up his robe. This is a, a difficult situation for Saul. What do you do? In the Eastern culture, you know, it's a hospitality culture. In a sense, Saul has just entered David's house and David protected him, which is the way of the East. If someone's in your home, you protect them. No matter what, you protect them. So Saul came into David's house, into this cave. David protected him and then he goes out. And David says, look, I protected you. These men wanted to kill you and I protected you. So Saul, what has he got to do? So you can tell I'm a little skeptical of his response. Everything he says is true, 
Most of it is true, but is it really from his heart? Well, look in chapter 25. He's still chasing David. In chapter 26, he's still chasing David. Chapter 27, he's still chasing David. Nothing has changed in Saul's heart. I believe what you're seeing in these words is just a man who's trying to make the very best of a difficult situation. He's a pragmatic king. He's got to save face before his his A-team, his 3,000 soldiers. But David's got the ultimate one-up on him. He's like, hey, I could have killed you. Didn't do it. And Saul in front of all of his men. It should remind you of when Elisha was in the city with his servant, remember? And the Syrian king sent the army, the whole army. And he said, look at the angels. They saw the angels all around them, the chariots of fire. Then the king of Israel said, what do I do? And he said, well, should I kill them all? No, 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 don't kill them. And they made a big feast, a huge feast for the Syrian army. And they fed them and they wined and dined them and they gave them new shoes and sent them on their way. What was just happening? Well, now the Syrian king is in a, in a bit of a, a bind because in that culture, you can't repay evil for good. He's been publicly honored and his whole army has been in wine and dine. It's the same kind of situation that's happened. Saul has just been dealt a, a huge public kindness. He cannot now turn and kill David in front of all these men. That would not be acceptable He would lose all credibility. Especially for one who had just shown him such hospitality and protected his life. So I think what's happening is Saul is being very pragmatic. Maybe he's overcome with emotion. Uh, I remember walking in on, on one of my children, doing something they knew was absolutely wrong. And before I said a word, they just started crying, Oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. Like, was that real? Well, yeah, the, the emotion was real. Was the, the heart genuinely in a place of repentance? No, because this thing continued. I think this is what we see with Saul. Genuine sorrow that he got caught, but trying to make the very best of a difficult situation. But we also see something else that's very sweet, and that is that Saul is speaking the truth of God about David. He's kind of like the high priest when the high priest described Jesus in his crucifixion, and he didn't even know Jesus or believe in Jesus. He said, isn't it better that one man die than the whole nation perish? Speaking of Christ's sacrifice unknowingly, this is what Saul's doing as well. He says, I know that you will be king. Just don't kill all of my people when you, when you get there. Like, if he can get that one thing, I think he thought is probably good. He gets one concession out of David. If you ever are king, don't kill all of my folks. And David swears that he won't. He'd already said the same thing to Jonathan, so David did not lose much in the process. But it is a blessing when your most severe enemy affirms God's word, saying that it's true. This is what happened to David. So Saul leaves. And what does David do? Well, 
he's not an idiot. He doesn't go back with Saul. He stays in the stronghold. Okay, that's the narrative. A few points of application. And really the, the point I believe in the sermon is that we should trust God and not run ahead. Not try to take matters into our own hands. I think we're all often secretly convinced that God may not really know what He's doing. And you say, no, well, actually I do trust God. Well, I do too. But in how we act in certain situations and the thoughts that are processed through our brains when we encounter difficulty or trouble, often I believe we, we all think that God's timing is just a little bit off. His answers are just not exactly right. And really, if we just ran ahead, if we just helped the situation a little bit, that things would be much better. The reality is this has kind of been our, our attitude since the fall. I'm just going to give you a few quick examples. I mean, I could go through the Scriptures and show this, but we'll just stick to Genesis. Look at Adam and Eve. Satan told them that God probably didn't have their best interests at heart. All they had to do was just reach out and take the fruit. This other fruit is good, but reach out and take that fruit. He's promised you blessing and favor, yes, but he doesn't know how much you're going to enjoy this fruit. And Adam and Eve leaned on their own understanding. They didn't acknowledge God. And that one sin, I mean, imagine that one sin, the power of one sin brought devastation to the universe, such as the holiness of our God. And how often do we sin and not consider it, not think about it? Adam and Eve sinned one time and the whole universe suffered. We have a God who is so holy What happened? They lean on their own understanding. They disobeyed the Lord. They ran ahead. They should have trusted God. They should have waited for God and His promises like David was trying to do. Well, that's Adam and Eve. Look at Abraham. Abraham had promises of God too. He was going to have descendants more numerous than the sand of the seashore. What else? He was going to have all of the land of Canaan, present-day Israel, so what happened? God called him at age 70. Age 85, he's still living in a tent. He owns nothing. And he has no kids. It's been 15 years. So what does he do? Well, when he gets in trouble, he starts lying about who his wife is. Oh, it's my sister. It's not my wife. He's not trusting. He's helping God out a little bit. But he still needs an heir, so his wife convinces him to take her slave, Hagar, as his wife. So he reached out and took her. And the result was Ishmael. God needed a little hand here. He wasn't doing it right. So who are the descendants of Ishmael? They're the inhabitants of the Middle East today. They hate Israel today and always have the descendants of Isaac. Think of all the wars and death and hatred inspired by this one thoughtless act of rebellion. 
Because Abraham leaned on his own understanding, he ran ahead and he took it. Look at Jacob and Esau. Jacob was promised the blessing. He was the child of promise. This is the last example. God said that the older would serve the younger ever since they were born. That was the promise. The older will will serve the younger. Jacob? Jacob is the son of promise. Jacob's an adult now. He doesn't see this working out right. His brother Esau is this big guy who likes to go hunting and his dad's favorite. So he bribes his starving brother for the birthright with a pot of stew. Then he deceives his father for the blessing. He takes these matters into his own hands rather than trusting God. So what's the result? Well, Esau hates David. And do you know up until the time of Christ, the Edomites hated the Israelites? Countless wars. He ran ahead. He leaned on his own understanding. He didn't trust God. We're not even out of Genesis. I could go on. This is the story of humanity. It's the story of God's people. But there are exceptions and spotlights are put on them because they're rare. David, he could have killed Saul and become king. But he wasn't going to murder Saul to do what God had already promised for him. His coming into the throne would be on God's timing And murdering Saul was not part of the promise. If God is who he says he is, and if the promises are true, then God would be faithful. This is David's attitude right now. So that's what I'm telling you. Trust God and be faithful. Okay, so that brings up a question. Does that mean we don't do anything unless it just falls right into our laps? Well, of course not. We have a mission. We're to go and make disciples of all nations. We're men and women of action. We've been given a mission on this earth. So how does this all play out in life? Well, I think if you look at David's fight against Goliath, like you can see him taking a risk, so we're not saying we never take risks. But what's the motivation? I, I like to take risks at times, but the motivation has to be the honor and glory of God in obedience to God's Word. Not anything selfish. David heard Goliath blaspheming God. And in his zeal for the Lord, he was inflamed by a love of God and wanted to go out and fight Him. And he did. There was no selfish interest involved. Do you see the difference? Killing Saul would have been very self-serving. Killing Goliath was just a natural response to his love for God. One is very selfish. One is very selfless. I think this is one way to parse your own decisions if pursuing your own interests at the expense of others is somehow working out in whatever you're considering, then that's not God. Then you need to wait. You need to lean on God's promises and trust His Word as Adam and Eve should have done. As Abraham should have done and Jacob should have done. Wait for God and His promises. If it involves sin, don't do it. Wait on God. What about these other decisions that are just normal decisions of everyday life? Do I buy this car or do I not? 
Do I go to this school or that one? Do I lead Sunday school or make food for the newcomer's class? Hint, hint. Do I do these things or not? Well, these are vocational decisions. They're, in other words, they're up to you. You have the freedom to make a choice, yes or no. It's not a sinful choice. It's not a moral decision. So in those types of normal decisions, you pray. And if it's an important decision, you seek godly counsel and you search the Scriptures and you pray. And when it comes time to make a decision, you just make a decision. It's not a moral decision. You're not grasping at something. You have to decide. God will give you wisdom. So those are the three types of decisions I think we see in this. We see David saying, no, I'm not going to take this matter into my own hands by killing, by sinning. With David and Goliath, we see David just with a zeal for God and a love for God going out and doing something, which is also good. And then we see just a lot of normal, everyday decisions, like David's decision to go to Engedi in the first place. It's not a moral decision. It's not a right or wrong. It makes sense. He probably prayed about it and went. These types of decisions will come in our lives as well. But, and I'll conclude with this, the most important thing I see in this, and I hope you see as well, is that David is a type of Christ. Jesus was tempted in much the same way as David. When his men said, go kill Saul, he's right there, go kill him. Seize the kingdom. You remember what Satan said to Jesus? Matthew 4, 8, he took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to, them, said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Had Jesus already been promised all the kingdoms of the earth by his father as an inheritance? Yes. He knew that one day every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord. So what is Satan doing? Satan is saying, here, I don't think you have to go through all of this other stuff. God doesn't really need you to suffer and die on a cross. He doesn't really need you to live this, this difficult life. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give it to you right now. You can help God out. You can take this thing now. You can reach out and grab it. There's an easier way. Just reach out and take it. When we run ahead of God in this way, when we sinfully run ahead and do something that we think is right, what we're doing really is falling down before Satan to worship Him. And I think you face tonight and really every day of your life the choice when it comes to these decisions, these kinds of decisions, life decisions, you have a choice to serve your Redeemer and trust Him and not lean to your own understanding and all your ways to acknowledge Him and allow Him to direct your paths or to fall down and worship Satan. And you say, I, I would never worship Satan. And I know you wouldn't. If Satan were standing here, I'm positive you would all run. We would not worship him. But when you try to manipulate situations in your life for your own well-being, when you use unbiblical ways to, to get the situation to work out for you, 
You're not trusting God. You're acting as a practical atheist. You're thinking you have to do it all yourself. And you can evaluate this by looking at your motives. What is inspiring this thing? Is it my love for God and His honor and His glory? Or is there a selfish motive working behind the scenes? I think in the actions of David, we see Christ. David waited on God and trusted God. And David would patiently, we're going to see in the next five chapters, patiently walk through suffering, waiting for God. He's not going to reach out and take anything by force. He's going to wait on God's favor. We see this attitude, and I'll just close with a few verses from Psalm 146. which we read also this morning. It begins, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man where there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. This is our God. You can trust him. He can do anything. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that we do have a wonderful example of trust. As we look at David walking through a very difficult time in life, being pursued for his own life, having his enemy given into his hand, and yet he will not murder, he will not take it into his hands, but he trusts you. Lord, help us also to trust you. Help us to be people of prayer. People who trust you even when it hurts, even when there's much risk involved. Help us to trust you. Show us your glory. May we love you and know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.